My name is Lauren Reno. I am a sinner saved by grace, a child of the King, a servant of the Most High. All that I have and am is from Him, for Him, and because of Him. It is my heart's desire to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God. And at the end of my life, I long to hear my Heavenly Father say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. That's my personal creed. That's who I am. Pastor Stephen dutifully researched and read some other stuff, but that's who I really am. The Bible has much to say about leadership. Some of it's good, some of it's bad leadership. Some of it's effective, some was ineffective. There are good and bad role models for leadership in the scripture. This weekend, my thoughts are going to center around leading God's way. Biblically consistent leadership. That's what I want to talk to you about. And if you don't get anything else from the whole weekend, take this away, that you should lead God's way. If you will lead God's way, you set yourself up for him to prosper your leadership for his glory. Now, the slide before you shows the topics that we plan to go through. So tonight, it's leading when duty calls veterans. There were 30, perhaps more, of you who stood. You understand this. You understand the sense of duty you feel. And there are times on the battlefield, flying in combat, preparing to fight, when fights break out, sometimes unexpectedly, when duty calls, you feel that duty. And as believers, we have a similar duty. But we're going to look at a man, a warrior, a veteran, who heard the call of duty and responded. Tomorrow morning, first session, I want to look at leading in difficult times. Now, this is going to be from Numbers 14. And the theme or the main idea of the passage is to live so the Lord delights in us. Not so we delight in him. That's good. That's necessary. But to live and to lead so the Lord delights in us. The second session tomorrow morning is on 10 leadership maneuvers. It's the title of the book, but it shows a biblical basis and it will give you some more stories about leading God's way. Tomorrow afternoon, we'll conclude with five common themes in the hard part of leading. Leading isn't easy. You don't always get instant gratification or recognition. And sometimes it is just downright hard. I want to acknowledge that. And I want to talk to you about some themes that come out of it, the hard part of leading, that you can steal yourself to be ready for that. And then also the hard part of leading, uh, and I don't hear many people talk about this, it's handling conflict and confrontation in a biblical way. What does God's word say about how to handle conflict and confrontation? That's what we'll do tomorrow afternoon. And if you are at the Adirondack Bible Chapel on Sunday, I intend to talk about a leader who is called out. There's a leader in the Bible that got called out. He was called out for his profession, but not because of his profession. That's a riddle. You'll have to come Sunday. 
called out for his profession, but not because of his profession. Sometimes we're called out for whose we are, not who we are. The first is more important. Next slide, guys. So tonight, leading when duty calls. Uh, Go to the next slide, please. Uh, The main idea is that the most high God is the possessor of heaven and earth. And you find that in Genesis 14.22. The most high God is the possessor of heaven and earth. If this is true, and the scripture says it is, it has implications for how we live and lead. If he is the possessor of heaven and earth and everything on it, including us and all we have, there are implications. He owns it all. It is his. We are but stewards and servants and caretakers. Now, you might be thinking right about now, okay, this is strange. I thought Pastor Stephen said he was a general. And generals get stuff done just by giving orders, not by serving. Au contraire. Fully 95% of the times that I had to get something done, I did by serving or cajoling or convincing or inspiring or influencing others and less than 5% by giving orders. Now in combat, there are times when you have to do it. But it's about being a steward and being a servant and being a caretaker. It's not about us and no, we are not entitled. Pastor Stephen, we were talking about that at supper tonight. We aren't entitled. If you're going to be a godly leader, it's about serving. So this matter, as you see on the slide at the top, Abram, that's before his name became Abraham in Genesis 14, he was a warrior, he was a giver, and he was a servant. Now, I confess, those three usually don't go together. Warriors take, they don't give. And they rule, not serve. But we're going to see something different with Abram. When great men serve... That really captivates, inspires, and encourages me. I hope you too. We all live in valleys and mountaintop experiences. And I hope this weekend is the latter for you, a mountaintop experience. But as a couple of us, as was mentioned, are in valleys. And life is difficult today, this weekend. There are some here who are carrying burdens and challenges, and life is hard right now. I mean, really hard. Show me a hand. Anyone? Yeah. You got stuff. Between chapter 12 and chapter 16 in Genesis, we find chapter 14. Chapter 12, Abram was down in Egypt. And because he thought Pharaoh had eyes for his wife and he didn't want her added to Pharaoh's harem and Abram done away with, he called her his sister. Lie. In chapter 16, two chapters hence after this, we see Hagar and Ishmael and Abram not waiting on the Lord. Those are the bookends for this. Lying and not waiting on the Lord. And here we are at a mountaintop experience. 
Now, there are some people who say you shouldn't look at people in the Bible, you should only look at God. Well, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so it's, it's worthwhile to look at it and see what we can learn about God in the life of Abram. And that's why I want us to go to Genesis chapter 14. We can see God's hand on Abram just as I can see God's hand on me. I'm just a town boy from Cedarville, Ohio. Grew up on a small farm. And the Lord decided to put his hand on me. And I pray the Lord will put his hand on you in this room. Even young Nathan. And all the way up. So turn, if you will, if you have it by now, Genesis 14. I would like to read for you uh, verses 11 to 17. And in honor of the word of God, if you're able, would you please stand as I read Genesis 14, 11 to 17. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and the brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed and tra his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheba, which is the king's dale. Father in heaven. We want to see Jesus. I pray you would comfort and heal my wife and that you would show your son to all of us. I pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So let's go to the next slide, please. Next slide, please. The first point in the outline is that to look at Abram the warrior. Now, I read the passage, but let me just speak the context in plain language. If you go back earlier in chapter 14, you see that this region that was ruled by five kings in the south had been in bondage for 12 years. Okay, that's more than a decade. They were in bondage 12 years. In the 13th year, they rebelled. And in the 14th year, there was a battle. And four kings from the north, came, who had been oppressing the south, came down and engaged the five kings of the south in battle. It was, it was a war. Lot was taken. Now, he's called his brother's son. Another place it's called Abram's brother. It's his nephew. His nephew his nephew's family and goods were taken by the core, the four vanquishing kings of the north, and they went back north. It was five kings against four. It was coalition warfare. It was a brutal battle. There was an invasion. There were casualties. There were KIAs. 
There were POWs. This is, this is war. Now, the geography, just a word about this. Some names that you may not be familiar with. Hebron and Mamre are south of Jerusalem and west of the south end of the Dead Sea. Okay, that's where Abram was. That's where the battle was. Dan is a city north of the Sea of Galilee and between Damascus and Hazor. And Hobah is at the left hand of Damascus. So, on the ground, it's not the way the bird flies or the way the Air Force goes, but on the ground, it's 130 miles from Hebron to Dan. And then it's about 35 or slightly more than 35 miles to go around Mount Hermon because it rises to 9,230 feet. And then from Hobah, back down to Salem, which is now Jerusalem, okay, it is 100 miles. And then Siddim Valley is at the south end of the Dead Sea. So we're talking about a big area. We're talking the Adirondacks in size. In verse 13, we see that Abram had confederates. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eskel, the brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. We start to get a glimpse of Abram here already. We see in verse 13 that they were confederate with him. I mean, the words matter in God's word. They were confederated with him, not he with them. You see, they were drawn, they were attracted to Abram. If you look back in chapter 13 and verse 2, it says, Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and gold. You read later, he had 318 trained servants, which he took, not counting women and children, in his own household. He was a very influential man. How about you? Are you one that people want to come and be confederate with? They want to be on your team. Are we living in that way? Abram was. And we see in 14 that he was ready to respond, and he responded immediately. He had arms that were ready. So he had an armory, veterans. You know what that means. You know what we keep in the armory. You know the security that we keep. We're very careful. We don't lose weapons. That's what a court-martial or an Article 15 is made of. Uh, he had an armory. Uh, his servants were trained and ready. They trained in taking care of the cattle, of course, but they were trained in battle and they were ready. 318. The first squadron I commanded when I was a lieutenant colonel, we had 148 in the squadron. And the second squadron I had had slightly more than Abram's, 318. And it says he pursued the adversary. He pursued them actively for 130 miles. Now, a 20-mile march in 24 hours is pretty good. If he was able to do 30 miles, it's at least four days and nights that they hiked up there, up to the north. And we see in verse 15 that Abram divided his force. Don't skip over that. This is military speak. But he had 318 plus whatever the Confederates contributed, and he divided the force. There was a trusted leader for each of those forces. You know what I'm going to ask you? 
Are you living your life? Are you doing your training? Are you conducting your affairs? Are you the husband and father and junior high boy that is such that you could be tapped to be a leader of one of these forces? It says that Abraham, Abram divided his force. And it said he fought by night. So this is an entire new dimension of warfare. The first mention in Scripture of fighting at night. It's special operations. Fighting at night has entirely different, you, you veterans understand this, entirely different recon. Communications are different at night. If you signal your forces by hand or by flags or by smoke, it doesn't work at night. The engagement, the tactics, where to put and employ your reserves, the logistics, the resupply, the command and control, all of that is different. Is, is different. And we see it in verse 15 in just a few words. He divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night and smote them. This is a warrior's warrior. I don't know if he was Army, Navy, Air Force, or Marine. I'm thinking he was Air Force, H-E-I-R, Air, so God join heirs with Jesus Christ. Uh, but we'll, we'll leave that alone. Yeah. Uh, in the Lord's Army, okay, I get it. Um, but night ops is different. It says he fought them by night. And then it says he prevailed in battle, and then he pursued them when they were in flight. They turned and ran, and he continued to pursue them. After they marched for 130 miles, <coughs> he then pursued them in flight. More than 35 more miles on top of the 130 around Mount Hermon. And in verse 16, the outcome, he recovered all the goods and Lot and his goods and the women and the people. This was a warrior. This is a mighty warrior. Verse 17 says it was a slaughter. And if you were to flip over to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1, in the New Testament, 2,000 plus years later, this battle is cited. It says in Hebrews 7, 1, speaking of Melchizedek, who we'll get to shortly, Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings. Okay, they didn't just scare him. They didn't have a negotiated peace. It was a slaughter. Okay, I'm talking about dead bodies and blood. It was a slaughter. A historical event. I can't help but as I think about what Abram did and the 130 miles and 35 more and attacking at night and all of this, I can't help but think of the spiritual aspect of this historical event. This is not a fable. This is not a story. This really happened. Okay? It really happened. My mind goes to Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, 
Take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. A spiritual application in Ephesians, in what I see of Abram in Genesis. In verse 17, we see the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram upon his return from the slaughter. So after the slaughter, a hundred-mile trek back down to Salem. And the king of Sodom, in verses 18 and 20, watches, 18 through 20, watches the engagement that Abram had that's recounted starting in verse 18. Next slide, please. We come to the second point in the chapter, in the section, and that is Abram the giver. First the warrior, then the giver. How uncharacteristic. He vanquished. He won. He's the victor. He got it all. And now he's going to turn into a giver. In verse 18, we see mention of Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now, the king of Sodom is standing there. Reference verse 17. And in verse 18, the, the Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brings bread and wine, and it says that he's the priest of Most High God. God. High God. Most High God. Priest of the Most High God. In verse 19, he blessed Abram. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. I think that's the main idea of the passage. When he blessed Abram, he identified him with the Most High God. You know what I'm going to ask. How is it with you? When people think of you, when they refer to you, when they see you, do they identify you with the Most High God in the things you say and do and think and where you go on the Internet and what you laugh at? Do they identify you with the Most High God? And then he identifies also in 19... He identified God as possessor of heaven and earth. Genesis 1.1, it says God created the heavens and the earth. In Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Isaiah 66, verse 1, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Hebrews 1, 2, by whom, speaking of Jesus, by whom he made the worlds. And Psalm 24, 1, repeated in 1 Corinthians 10, 26, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Melchizedek identified God as the possessor of heaven and earth. And in verse 20, Melchizedek blessed he said, Blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all, he, Abram. Melchizedek credits God for the victory in the battle. If you've had a victory in a battle, veterans on Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam, I was having supper tonight with someone 
And they asked if I was any, in any battles, and I tried to avoid the question. He said, well, were you in World War II? <laughs> no, uh, I'm, not that, I'm old, but I'm not that old. But Melchizedek gave God the credit for the victory in the battle. You know, in Exodus 14, 14, Moses told the people, the Lord shall fight for you, and he shall be your peace. Think of Exodus 17, 8 to 14, when Moses commissioned Joshua and said, choose us out men. And they went and fought, and Moses stood on the hill and held his hands up. You remember her and Aaron holding up his arms. But the Lord fought in the battle. In Deuteronomy 1.30, the Lord your God which goes before you, he shall fight for you. Joshua 11.6, and the Lord said, be not afraid of them. For tomorrow about this time will I deliver them up all slain before Israel. Joshua 23.10, one man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God, he it is that fighteth for you as he hath promised you. It's pretty clear. God delivered Abram's enemies into his hands and men. God, the same God, will deliver your enemies into your hand. Some of you are in a battle. God still fights for you, and God gives the victory. We see in 20 that Abram, the giver, gave tithes of all he had. One-tenth is what the word means. He gave one-tenth of everything that he took as plunder. He gave it to Melchizedek. There's no precedent for this. This is before the law. Abraham, chronologically, well before Moses in the law. No precedent, but that's how he honored the Lord God. Next slide. Verses 22 to 24. We have seen Abram the warrior. We've seen Abram the giver. And now we see Abram the servant. I don't think you can be an effective leader if you aren't also an effective servant. In fact, I think if you serve well, the leadership will take care of itself. If you're focusing on leading and not on serving, you're going to have problems. You're not going to be as effective as you could. In verse 22, it says, And Abram said to the king of Sodom, Okay, so he's been talking to Melchizedek, and the king of Sodom's been standing there. Now Abram turns to the king of Sodom. And he tells him, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. So apparently the king of Sodom was present, and he was listening to this this exchange. He saw the tithe given. He heard the victory credit going to God. The Jeremiah Study Bible says, This was a dramatic gesture reinforcing Abram's oath to refuse any item from King Bera. When I was stationed in Oklahoma at Tinker Air Force Base, I had an opportunity to meet a World War II veteran. His name was Bill McClendon. He lived in Muskogee. 
we developed a relationship. He's a World War II vet. And he invited me over to his house. And, and what he did was he was flying P-38s in the Pacific Theater as MacArthur left the Philippines, remarshaled his troops in 43, and then started back north. And Bill, Bill McClendon, an airman at the time, his commander, his group commander said, McClendon, what do you know about boats? Boats, he said, I'm a fighter pilot. I don't know anything about boats. I guess the pointy end is the front and the square end is the back. <clears throat> his commander said, you know enough about boats. I have commandeered 23 boats off the local economy. It is your job to get them crewed because as the war moves north, there are going to be a lot of airmen, allied airmen shot down into the Pacific, and we're going to need to pluck them out of the water, and that's what I want you to do. He said, yes, sir, I'll do it. And so I won't give you the whole story, but 23 boats. The rest of the war, Bill McClendon never touched the throttle of a fighter. Never flew a P-38 again. He drove a boat and was in charge of the other 22. And he and his team picked up 723 downed airmen. And I looked at his decorations, and there was not a single decoration medal awarding him for what he did. <clears throat> so I was sitting on his couch in his living room. He was 88 at the time. He picked up a British crew. And they said, we don't want to call you lieutenant. That's a disparaging term. So I said, we're going to call you Skipper. He was Skipper McClendon ever since. So I said, Skipper, how did you feel when your commander said, you're not going to fly airplanes anymore. You're going to drive boats. He thought for maybe two seconds. And he sat on the couch and turned to me and he said, I took an oath. That's all he said. Veterans, you know what I'm talking about. He raised his hand and he said, I solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which I'm about to enter. So help me God. There was nothing in that oath about flying fighter jets. There was nothing in that oath about doing what he wanted. He raised his hand and he took an oath. And that's what I see here with Abram responding to the king of Sodom. He said, I lifted up my hand. Daniel 1.8, I see a captive, Nathan, a teenager. And he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat and the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested the prince of the eunuchs that he wouldn't have to do that. Because he took an oath. There was something more important. Genesis 39, 9. You know the story. Potiphar's gone. T-D-Y. T-A-D if you're Navy. Mrs. Potiphar cast her eyes on him. And Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Nehemiah 6, 3. Nehemiah replying to Tobiah and Sanballat, who said, come down to the valley of Ono, 
Well, they should have known by the name of the valley that that's not going to end well. And down means from Jerusalem down the hill. Nehemiah replied, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? For decades, centuries, millennia, people have been raising their hand, acknowledging the greater authority to do the right thing. Men, you've given your life to the Lord. You took an oath. You raised your hand. It's above the heads of everyone else. In verse 22, we see that he raised his hand unto the Lord, the Most High God. He didn't just raise his hand. He raised his hand to God. It's interesting to me that here in verse 22, he uses the same words that Melchizedek did. Hear, learn, use the words and the word of God. He used the same words that Melchizedek did. He acknowledged that God possesses the heaven and earth that God's in charge, it's all his. He owns it, and we are but stewards and servants. In 23 and 24, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, he's talking to the king of Sodom, lest thou shouldest say I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portions. Abram declined the abundance of man's provision. Jeremiah's study Bible says, those who are allied with God most high do not need what any earthly king has to offer. I couldn't agree more. Those who are allied with God Most High don't need what any earthly king has to offer. Man's world, it often has strings attached, currying favor, ulterior motives. When I was on active duty, particularly in my last assignment, <clears throat> I would not accept gifts that were solely due to my position. I remember at the Pentagon, there was one large aerospace company that I won't name, that would every year bring a huge box of candy. No, bigger than you're thinking. It was this long, it was about three feet long, it was about two feet wide, and I can't remember how many layers it had of the finest chocolates. And they would bring that to my office, and I would have lit them in the door. They could leave in the outside, people would come and go, can take it, I didn't take a single chocolate because I didn't want to be indebted to them. Allied with the Most High God, you don't need what any king has to offer. Exodus 18, 21 to 22, 21 to 22 it's interesting. When Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, came to Moses and talked to him about delegating, he said, moreover, you shall select from all the people Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. 
It's interesting. The four criteria that Jethro said, Moses, when you pick someone to delegate something to, one of those is hating covetousness. He didn't say, don't be covetous. He said, hate it. And the reason is, and men, if you are 40 or more, you understand this in spades. Because if you are in a position of power and authority, then it's more that you want. More money, more authority. It's the private parking space. It's the corner office. You know all the perks that come with being in charge. And Jethro told Moses, pick men who hate covetousness. Jesus had some things to say in Luke 12, 15. He said unto them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Daniel 5, 17, Daniel answered and said before the king, let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. Abram was consistent. You see the tithe in verse 20? Giving. And now not accepting from the king of Sodom. Abram was concerned about his reputation and he didn't want the king of Sodom to be able to say, I have made Abram rich. He would have no part of that. And then we see in verse 24 that Abram was compassionate. The only exception he made was food for his men, a portion for the three confederates who had gone with him. I see that Abram served Melchizedek, he served his men, he served his confederates. Melchizedek. It says in Hebrews that he had no descendants, neither father nor mother, and his days are from the beginning. That has to be Jesus, a theophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Abram served this Melchizedek. He served up the chain. He took care of his men. He served down the chain. And he took care of his confederates. He served across the chain. That's what leaders do. They serve up the chain. They serve down the chain. They serve across the chain. If you're a pastor or a church leader, if you're a teacher, if you're driving a bus, if you're working at a school, serve up and down and across the chain. So that's the story, next slide, of Abram, the warrior, the giver, and the servant. Leading when duty calls. When the escapee came and told Abram what happened, boom, he got after it. Rounded up the 318, hiked 130 miles, day and night, attack at night. He led when duty called. The main idea was the most high God is the possessor of heaven and earth. <clears throat> I see some applications that I would just <clears throat> share with you and ask you to think about. There are five. Here's the first one. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. This comes from Romans 12, 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I think of Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven. Be in the world, but not of the world. 
Number two, be ready for the fight. And I'm not talking about being recalled to active duty. I'm talking about the fight in your life. Be armed and trained and willing so we get this right from Abram. Have the bandwidth so you can drop what you're doing and do something that's more important. Some things are worth fighting for. And some of us need to step up to those things. Be ready for the fight. Number three, be persistent in commitments. What was the trigger that caused Abram to march north with his men? It was hearing about Lot and his family. Let us be persistent in our commitments. Under promise, over deliver. Jesus keeps his promise to a thousand generations, a metaphor that means forever. He always keeps his word. Let us do it too. Number four, he saw God's hand in the battle's victory and he responded accordingly. When something good, right, planned, hoped for, exciting happens, are you owning that credit or are you giving it to the one who owns everything in heaven and the earth? I see God's hand on a, a town boy from Cedarville, Ohio, and I pray his hand will be on you. And number five, Abram sought God's favor, not man's. He sought God's favor, not man's. He would not be made rich by the king of Sodom. Colossians 3.23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto man. Whatever you do, that kind of covers it. Do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto man. Father in heaven, most high, heavenly Father, possessor of heaven and earth, make us stewards who serve and lead well for your honor and your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.